Well, again, good morning and welcome to St. Paul's, whether you're with us here or online. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, give us now your Spirit. Flood this place in it. Fill us with your Spirit, that with the eyes and ears of the Spirit we would perceive in your word the face of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask this and all things. Amen. Please be seated. So I want you to try to imagine that you're living in the earliest years of the church, say A.D. 50, a couple decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when Christianity was still just this fringe religious movement, a, a weird sect of Judaism that most people knew nothing about. And you're living in some town in Galatia, which is a part of the Roman Empire that's now central Turkey. And you know about these people, the Jewish people, who are from a faraway country. There's a, a, a group that lives in your, your city. Unlike everybody else, they don't have any idols that they worship. They worship an invisible God. And they're strict in their ethics and their religious observance. They're a people set apart. And then one day, some strangers come into town and start talking about how the long-awaited Savior of the Jewish people, the Messiah, the Christ, had appeared a couple decades ago. His name was Jesus of Nazareth, and the story goes that he was crucified, died, and came back to life. And now he's ascended into heaven and poured out God the Holy Spirit upon his people, his followers on earth. And now God the Holy Spirit actually lives in the bodies of God's people, and Jesus will come back to set all things right. What's really the kicker is that the Savior of the Jewish people, the strangers say, is actually the Savior of the whole world even non-Jews like you. And incredibly, the people who believe in Jesus start gathering together, Jew and non-Jew alike. This has never happened before. And for whatever reason, you believe this story. You believe it's promise for you. Like maybe you've seen some miracles happening. You've seen uh, Christians being healed. Maybe you see the miracle of lives changed, of enemies forgiving each other, of love. And you're like, I want that. So you go to one of these Christian gatherings and you say, I'm in. I want this for me. Tell me what to do. What do I do? Now, there has been a lively debate up to this point about whether male Christian converts need to be circumcised like faithful Jewish men. And some of the Christians say you have to do that, but others say no, non-Jews don't have to be circumcised to be Christian. But then a letter arrives from headquarters to the church in Jerusalem. And the letter says, we met and talked about it. This is what Bishop Jenny uh, preached about last week, if you heard that. The, the meeting that changed the world, that let the Gentiles join the Jesus movement. The letter says, we've met and we've decided. Non-Jews can join the church and they don't have to be circumcised. That's a relief, you say. That's great. Excellent. So what do I have to do to be a good Christian? And the church, letters, church leaders look at the letter and they say, okay, well, there's a few things in here about not eating food that's been slaughtered a certain way and you can't be sexually immoral. And you're like, amazing. God came to earth. God the Holy Spirit's going to live in my body. I can absolutely do those things that you're saying. Consider them done. But what else? I, I want to be a Christian, so tell me the rules. And the church leaders are like looking at the letter from Jerusalem like, hmm, there's nothing else here. And you're like, hang on, hang on. You're telling me, you say, that the God of the universe became a human being and promises eternal life 
And if I want to get on board, there's only three rules that I have to follow, like don't eat a couple things and stop sleeping around. And the church leaders are like, no, there's got to be more than that. Maybe they forgot a page. No, but the church in Jerusalem didn't forget a page. That's it. Those are the rules. That's the extent of the Christian law for non-Jews, as it were. Now, maybe your response to this is like, awesome. Life after death, and I can do whatever I want in the meanwhile, free pass. Or maybe your response to this is like, no way that is right. Something this big needs a response from me that's just as big. There have got to be rules to this thing. And don't we just have these kinds of responses from Christians today? There's the, I'm not perfect, just forgiven, do what I want, as long as I believe the right stuff, it's God's job to forgive me anyway, versus faith means a set of rules, extensive, about what to do and how to do it and who to do it with, and you've got to act and look and be a certain way, and every church has these implicit codes, how to be a good Anglican or a good Catholic or a good evangelical, whatever those things are. Because as much as we might look at the extensive, detailed Jewish law and say, who could keep that perfectly? Freedom can be its own kind of problem too, can't it? I was listening to this radio program about the psychological effects of the pandemic, and this doctor was saying what was so hard was the sheer uncertainty of it. And the the people who got hit the hardest were the ones who craved that stability of routine and their rhythm, and that just got rocked. People need structure to feel safe. They need guidelines. So if there aren't rules, what's being a Christian all about? Without rules, what's a Christian life even look like? How do you do it? How do you decide to do this instead of that? That's the context for our Galatians reading this morning. We're getting to the end of our Story of Everything preaching series, 20 weeks through the whole Bible, start to finish, tracking through a hundred days of Bible reading through a hundred of the essential passages of Scripture. And now we're in the section of the New Testament, which is the part of the Christian Bible that talks about Jesus' life and His church. We're in the section called the Epistles, which means the letters. And these are letters that were sent by early Christian leaders to churches in the Middle East and Europe. The authoritative, spirit-led teaching of the apostles about how to follow Jesus that then became part of our Bible. And most of the letters in the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul, which is the namesake of this church, who was initially someone who had persecuted the church, but then had this miraculous turnaround, and he became the early church's greatest missionary, and arguably its most important theologian. Paul's letters to the churches offer teaching about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And some of the letters are encouraging. Some are instructive, but in Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is what Charlotte read for us today, Paul is pretty disappointed. Paul is displeased because the Galatians seem to have been tempted by the lure of religious rules, that Christians have to obey the historic Jewish law to do this and do that, including circumcision. And that's where our reading begins, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It'd be great if you could follow along either in your Bible that you brought or your pew Bible uh, or on your phone. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And here in verses 1 to 6, this is the first chunk we'll deal with, Paul's making a really important claim. He's saying, not only does circumcision not get you anything, it actually cuts you off. See that? 
It actually cuts you off, pun intended, from what Jesus did for you. Look, Christianity is all about what it means to stand before a holy God, even though we all sin. It's about, in a nutshell, getting right with God. And the way you get right with God, Paul says, isn't through following a law that you can't obey. The way you get right with God is the faithfulness and righteousness of Jesus. That's what restores you to God despite your sins. It's Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' faithfulness, Jesus' goodness, Jesus' trustworthiness. That's what justifies you, in Paul's words. Justifies you before God, covers you, holds you. And the way that you get to that justification is not by anything you do, but by trusting that Jesus has done for you what you can't do for yourself. That's faith. And if you try to add obedience to the law, to your faith, the belt and suspenders approach, it actually makes your faith null and void. Because you're in effect saying, faith isn't enough. Jesus isn't sufficient. I need something I can do too. I need, I need a law that I can obey, that I can be good at, that I can try for. Adding the law to your faith is like if a guy shows up to the team building exercise at work to do trust falls, and he shows up with a helmet on, wrapped head to toe in bubble wrap, like, I'm ready to trust. It's like, I think Stuart missed the memo, right? Faith or law, you can't have both. You've got to pick. So if you follow the law, say by being circumcised, you're not really trusting having faith. If you're wearing a belt and suspenders, one of them is holding up your pants, and you don't really trust your belt. If you don't have that trust, faith, you're not benefiting from the thing that you have faith in, which is to say Jesus' faithful self-sacrifice. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, Paul says there in verse 6. The only thing that counts in the life of the Christian is faith, working through love faith working through love. That's what counts. That's what matters. That's what adds up. That's what has effect in our lives, is faith working through love. That's what the Christian life looks like, Paul says. It looks like faith working through love. So what does that look like? And now we're getting at the heart of it. Now we're getting at the heart of it. Look at verse 13. You are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to indulge yourself, okay? But become enslaved to one another through love, because if you bite and devour each other, you'll consume one another. That's pretty intense language. Paul's pointing out something at the core of being human, which is that none of us is really free, not in the sense that we're inclined to think about freedom. Because if freedom is being able to do whatever you want, that's a pretty sorry vision of freedom. Because then you are basically just a servant of what you want. You are a servant of your desires, your wants. And why do you even want what you want? At bottom, does any of us know why we want what we want? If freedom means being able to do whatever you want, whatever comes naturally to you, then you're basically a walking itch that you can scratch at any time. And what a disappointing vision of what it means to be human that is. 
You can be free in the sense that nobody's telling you what to do. Sure, fine, but that's not actually freedom. That's just a hidden servitude to what Paul calls the desires of the flesh. Verse 16, don't gratify those, he says. Instead, live by the Spirit. Now we are getting to it. Which is to say, live according to the Holy Spirit that God has given to you. Because the flesh and the spirit, they're opposed, Paul says. They want different things. They pull you in different directions. Now, Paul has this long list of the obvious works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, etc. This isn't meant to be like a, a catalog. This is more of a verbal collage, a picture of the vices that collectively lead to chaos and ruin. It's like the Garden of Earthly Delights, a triptych by the uh, 15th century painter Hieronymus Bosch. This is an all-ages service, so I'm not going to leave this up too long. Uh, but you get the idea. The left panel is the purity of the Garden of Eden. The middle panel, which uh, children should turn their eyes away from, is humanity's turn to fleshly gratification. Then it descends into nightmare of the right panel. And now let's take that down before I get in trouble. Just because there's no Christian law against these things, this collection of fleshly desires, doesn't mean they're okay. Those who do these things won't inherit the kingdom, Paul says. But the reason you don't do them isn't because there's a specific prohibition against each one, like you can be this debauched but no more, and you know, only this much gluttony is okay, and you, know, you can be a Christian, three drinks is all right but not four, whatever. Rather, it's because the Christian life isn't about gratifying the flesh wholesale, but instead walking in the Spirit. And living or walking in the Spirit yields fruit. We see there in verse 22, fruit. That's different than the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh, like enmity, anger, drunkenness, those are things you can do. You can work those. You can make those happen. But you can't force yourself to the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. It's the fruit. Just like if you have a garden, you don't make the carrots and radishes and lettuce grow, right? All you do is you tend the garden you make it possible, you do your best to make a hospitable environment for the sun and the seed and the water and God to bring forth the growth. And in the same way, the Spirit makes those good things come to fruition in the lives of people who live by the Spirit. And so here we finally arrive at the answer to that question that I had you ask in your imaginary hypothetical early Christian convert. Asking, what do I do if I don't have rules? How do I live a Christian life? What's that mean? Is it just a free pass? And the answer is no. Just because there's no law doesn't mean it's a free pass. The way you live instead is by walking with the Spirit. And that takes work. This is a mistake I think a lot of Christians make to think that freedom in Jesus Christ which is real freedom, but to think that that means that there's no effort involved, that it just comes naturally. No, it takes a lot of effort, but it's not the effort of being scrupulous about a law, like, oh, did I do that right, or did I stay under the speed limit, meet that tax deadline, whatever. No, it's the effort of intention, of remembering why it is that you do what you do. And it's the effort of attention, of attending to the Holy Spirit within you, the Holy Spirit who brings forth the fruit that you have no power of yourself to grow. It's the effort of remembering that if you are a Christian, wherever you go, 
And whatever you do, the Holy Spirit is walking with you. And I'm not speaking metaphorically here or symbolically. Like right now, the Holy Spirit walked into this church with you. God is now your companion, your friend. In good and in bad, in sickness and in health, life and death, right there with you. But the desires and works of the flesh, they're noisier than the Spirit is. They're flashier than the Spirit is. And if you're indulging yourself in those, you can make yourself insensate to the Spirit. You can deaden yourself so that you can't hear the soft voice of the Spirit, that you can't feel the Spirit's gentle touch. If you're a Christian, if you've been baptized, whether you are all in or you're feeling guilty because you're not doing it right, like whatever that means, you've received the seal of the Holy Spirit. This divine reality is within you now. This is like a true fact, as my kids would say. In your heart right now, greet the God who's with you. I'm serious, right now. Greet the God who's with you in your heart, the Spirit who is with you, who woke, up you, who woke you up today to a morning that none of us was promised, who's walked with you every second of this day, whether or not you are paying attention. God is with you. And if you're not a Christian, if you're spiritually exploring, well, God brought you here too. There's no time like the present to pray here and now and give yourself to Jesus as Savior and Lord, someone to trust and someone to follow. You don't have to have the right words. What words could be right enough? It just takes a sincere heart. And this reality, this promise, is waiting for you. If you take one thing away from today, it would be this. Like, God is real and God is with you. Not as a story, not as a metaphor, but real your friend who's accompanying you. And this will change your life. This will change your life. It won't happen overnight. I mean, not most of the time anyway. Sometimes it does. But it's so liberating because we can't always change the circumstances we're in. But we can, anybody, at any time, can turn inward, can face God who's been poured out on you by the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. And everyone is invited to the salvation that Jesus offers. So this is something you can do now, do later today, do this week if you remember this sermon. That your life, the, the, the days in front of you, the moments in front of you are going to be filled, filled with reminders of God's presence and reality if you will only pay attention. And whenever you catch a glimpse of God in the ordinary, turn, turn to the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Offer your thanks, ask for guidance, and pray for strength. And enjoy the freedom that you have in Christ to have a faith working through love in a life that is led by the Spirit. Amen.